And hasn't he been just such a blessing? How awesome oh. is Very kind, very kind. Thank you, brother. Well, those of you who chose this conference over hunting tonight, <laughs> your reward will be great in heaven. <laughs> Amen. Some of you asked me uh, where you can get my books because they're not at the table and you can go to my website it's myname.org and in the menu you'll see books and those are all the books you just click on them and it'll take you to various bookstores where you can pick them up it also will explain to you what the book is about etc there's about 20 of them on that page the message that I brought this morning and this message will appear on that podcast there will be a part two to this message because it's impossible for me to get it all out. So part two will appear on the podcast too. Just FYI. I'd like to uh, say something to the Lord. Lord, I just um, ask you for your unction and your anointing. I ask that you would uh, devastate, obliterate, remove, Everything that we may be doing that is not of you, through you, to you, and for you. I pray that you would expose uh, those things that have originated in other sources rather than your spirit and your life. I pray that this message would cut to the bone our strategies, our tactics, our methods, those things that have not sprung from the life of your spirit. And Lord, I'm also asking that some who are listening to this, either presently or when the recording goes out, you would destroy the foundations of everything they are doing and rebuild and resurrect into something brand new, that which is glorifying to you. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. amen. Well, I want to ask for your indulgence. I want to ask for your patience. Uh, I want to ask for your grace. I hope that what I have to say tonight will rattle your cage. I hope that it will lay an axe to some of the things that, that you may be doing. I also hope to support, encourage, buttress some of what you're doing. Uh, when Matthew graciously invited me to speak, he said this was a leadership conference. The people who are attending, most of them are in ministry. And of course, there are all different kinds of ministries, but I'm gonna speak to those of you who serve the Lord in some way. And I have never brought this message before. I am utterly dependent on the Lord. <laughs> and we'll see what he does with it. But in case you're wondering, the message is called the two anointings. 
as you can see. <laughs> and I wish I had 24 sessions because I would need 24 sessions to unload and unravel everything that I want to say about this topic. So this is going to be an introduction, okay? But I think it will be enough for you to chew on and maybe even have a rendezvous with your Lord over what you hear. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture to you, and I'm going to begin in 1 Samuel, and I'm just going to read them to you, so just listen. You can always jot down the verses, but this will be recorded. It is being recorded, so you can always go back. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, we have the anointing of King Saul. Listen to 1 Samuel 10 verses 1 to 2, and this is the NIV. Then Samuel, the prophet, took a flask of olive oil, a flask of olive oil, and he poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord's anointed you ruler over his inheritance? And then if you jump down to verse 10, we're told, When he, Saul, and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he joined their prophesying. That's the first anointing. As you read further in 1 Samuel, you come to chapter 16, and you have the anointing of David. Listen to 1 Samuel 16, 13 in the NIV. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now let's compare these two anointings. First, the same prophet anointed both. Samuel, right? Secondly, they were both anointed with the same oil. It was the sacred oil set apart for anointing. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. They had that in common. The third thing they had in common was the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God, the only Holy Spirit of the living God came upon both Saul and David. Well, there's one difference. The container. <laughs> Saul was anointed through the vehicle of a flask. And David was anointed through the vehicle of a horn. And it was one of my mentors, Deren Franke, who was the first person to point out this distinction, the flask versus the horn. Flasks are man-made. They speak of man's natural power, man's natural ingenuity, man's natural wisdom, man's natural strength. A man made the flask. But horns, they come from God. <laughs> That bony structure on the head of a, a ram or a lamb or a goat, they come from that which was once 
living. And throughout the Old Testament, the horn has a very specific meaning. Psalm 75:10. all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. All throughout the Old Testament narrative, lifting up the horn represents the bestowal of God's power and God's authority. Cutting off the horn speaks of the removal of power and authority. And so Saul was anointed by a flask and David was anointed by a horn. Yet both had the same spirit of God. Ponder that. The same Holy Spirit anointed both men. That's telling. I want you to be impressed with that. 1 Samuel 12, 13 says this, referring to Saul. Now, therefore, here is the king, pointing to Saul, who you have chosen, talking to Israel, and whom you have desired. Let me tell you the story. Israel was begging God for a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted a king who would fight their battles and lead them. And this was not the Lord's will. But God accommodated them. He allowed it. He gave them what they wanted. First point, be careful what you pray for. The Lord may give you your request. I've had this happen in my own life. And <laughs> we have a very merciful God. A very kind God, you know, it's like earthly fathers, earthly fathers, you know, well, it's hard for them to say no. Sometimes the Lord is like that. Be careful what you pray for. And God through Samuel even warned the people and said, look, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And they heard it. And they said, we want a king anyway. So God gave it to them. And they chose based on his outward appearance, his outward charisma, his outward talent. They chose Saul based on everything that was outward. And when I think of King Saul, I think of Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> the scripture says he was taller than all the men in Israel, stronger, a remarkable specimen of humanity. <laughs> the rock. And God gave them their request and uh, didn't turn out too well. Now here's another point. What God allows does not equate what God approves. Well, they have such a big church. Their conference was huge. I had to turn people away. That book's a bestseller. It sold more than most any other book this year. That leader has a quintillion followers on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. So, what God allows does not equate what he approves. Thank you, brother. 
This brings us to something that is not talked about a whole lot. It brings us to the issue of serving God with the right motive, the right intention, but with the wrong source. Serving God with the flesh. Now, let me break this down for you. Romans 8, verse 8, Paul of Tarsus says, the flesh cannot please God. Period. Full stop. End of sentence. The flesh cannot please God. John 6, 63, the Lord Jesus. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Another translation says, human effort accomplishes nothing. John 3, 6, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Let me give you a definition of the flesh that I think trumps any of the others that I've ever heard. You can think of the flesh as being what you are and what you can do apart from God's life and power. That's the flesh. Whatever you are and whatever you can do without the life of God and the power of God is flesh and it counts for nothing the flesh profits nothing the flesh cannot please God now Jesus made an arresting statement in John 5 verse 30 he said I can do nothing of my own and in the context he was talking about living by his father's life and serving by his father's power through the spirit of the father who lived in him. And then he turned around and he told his disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a radical statement, but I want you to get a hold of it. Anything you do, rightly motivated, it doesn't matter that originates in your own natural life, by your own natural power, by your own natural energy, is harnessing the flesh in God's work. And the impact it's going to have will be very limited. It will not be pleasing to the Lord. And very oftentimes it will backfire. The flesh cannot please God, and we can do nothing that counts for God when we're in the flesh. Now, this is tricky because this brings us to the sober fact that there are two sides to the flesh. Two sides to the flesh. And I wish when I was a young believer, somebody told me about this because I had no clue. All I thought when I heard flesh was, you know, oh, that's sin. That's sinful behavior. No. The flesh has two sides. And I'm going to give both a name. The unrighteousness of the flesh, that's one side. And the self-righteousness of the flesh, that's the other side. And the unrighteousness of the flesh is pretty obvious. The New Testament has a term for it, the works of the flesh. All right. And 
it also uses the term the deeds of the body. And Paul says in Romans and in Colossians, put to death, mortify the deeds of the body. But the self-righteousness of the flesh is not so obvious. It's what you and I do for God in our own natural power and energy. It's what we do apart from God's life and power, even if it's well-motivated. Example, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. This is the bad side of the flesh, okay? Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he lists all these sinful, defiling, corrupt things of the body. But the other side of the flesh, which we can think of as the good side of the flesh, is exemplified in Philippians 3, verse 3. He lists all these good things he has done for his God, rightly motivated. And then he says, we who worship God in the spirit have no confidence in the flesh. He's talking about that good side of the flesh. To serve God in the energy of the flesh, sisters and brothers, is to minister for God, but not from God. You're drawing on a different source, your own natural power and wisdom and ingenuity and strength, rather than the spirit of a living God. Now, this harkens back to the two trees in the garden. There's a correlation. Genesis 2, verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and that's good for food. The tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of life, knowledge of good and evil. Tree of life, God's life. God's life was pulsating in that tree. And when Jesus Christ came on the scene, he said, I am the vine tree. I'm the tree of life. Consume me. Live by my life. You cannot do anything, even good things, apart from me. Take a bite out of the right tree. Feed on me. Partake of me. I'm the tree of life. But notice it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of knowledge of evil. It's the knowledge of good. And when you, as a Christian, you have God's life in you. And you say, ah, I read this in the Bible. Or somebody wants me to volunteer. Or here, here's a need I, I want to meet. Or I'm getting ready to give a, a message. And you depend on your own natural wisdom, your own natural power, your own natural strength to do God's work because it's good. You're eating from the wrong tree. Even though it's good because it's the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is full, complete dependence, denial of the flesh, the good and bad side, and where you say, I can do nothing. I can do nothing unless God himself does it through me. And you are, you are in fear and trembling of drawing on your own power and strength. That's what it means to serve God 
in the newness of the spirit. And I'm quoting Paul in Romans 7. Serving him in the newness of the spirit rather than harnessing the energy of the flesh in the work of God. I'm going to give you some examples of this. So you could see it very clearly. The Tower of Babel. The men of the earth wanted to build a tower, a structure, a building that reached the heavens. They were wanting to do something good for God. Who lives in the heavens? God. And the scripture is very clear. They used brick. Brick. Bricks are man-made. God builds with stone. It was stone that was in the Garden of Eden, associated with the garden, precious stones. It's stone that's in the New Jerusalem. The Temple of Solomon was built with stone. God makes stones. Man makes brick. And when we're doing God's work in the energy of the natural strength, we're building with brick and the flesh profits nothing. I like preaching to Pentecostal charismatics. It's so enjoyable. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, sometimes I preach to audiences and I'm just fired up and people are giving me the thousand yard stare and others are in the Baptist coma and it's really <laughs> difficult. I have to say, call the morgue. I'm talking to dead people. I don't have to say that to y'all. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> All right. Okay, more examples. Uh, Saul's great sin. God spoke to Saul. Samuel told him what to do. I want you to destroy Amalek. The Amalekites. Everything. Everything that moves. Everything that breathes. Destroy it all. And Saul partially obeyed. You know what he did? He destroyed everything except for the good things. He kept the king and the best sheep and cattle. And Amalek represents the flesh all throughout the Old Testament. He kept the good part of the flesh and destroyed the bad part of the flesh. And that's when God said, done. The anointing has left you. I'm going to have another king. It was that sin. Sisters and brothers. Amalek. Another example. We, um, not too long ago, we had a U.S. president who was extremely gifted in oratory. Spectacular speaker. And people would listen to him and some people would faint under the power of his oratory. It was incredible. He could stir people up. He could mesmerize an audience. Incredible power. And he can persuade the mind 
He can even call the will to action. He can touch the emotions. But sisters and brothers, it never went to the human spirit. It never hit the heart. It did not transform a human being. That's what natural power can do. It can move your emotions. It can touch and stimulate your mind. It can even call your will to action, but it does not transform because the flesh profits nothing. And brothers and sisters, as I say this, we have hundreds of thousands of great orators behind pulpits. They can wow you with their rhetoric and their oratory. And very often, it's natural power. It's the flask, not the horn. They have the Spirit of God. They have the same Spirit, just like Saul had the same Spirit that David had. Uh, but the container was different. Okay. All right. I didn't know y'all liked that president. Okay. I like that joke. I don't care, folks. I'll give you another example. The Old Testament priests, there was a select class of people through the line of Aaron that were the priests who served the Lord. They served God's house. And now in the New Covenant, we are all priests. Men and women, all priests. The priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter chapter 2, Revelation chapter 1, we're all priests. Well, in the Old Testament, God gave very specific instructions to the priests. Yes. Very specific. Yes. And you're looking at it as like, why this? Why that? Why do they have to do this? Why do they have to wear that? It all speaks spiritually. The law was a shadow of things to come, Hebrews says. Priests could not wear wool. They had to wear linen. And this is very specific in the book of Ezekiel. They couldn't wear wool. Why? Because you sweat in wool. It's human energy, human strength, natural power. Wool makes you sweat. And God said, no, my priests will not wear wool. They will wear linen. They will not sweat because they will be drawing from my power, not their power. And here's my last example. The last example is Jake. Jake was a high school student, top of his class, valedictorian. He played football. He was a football star. The men admired him. The women loved him. And uh, Jake went to a, his girlfriend dragged him <laughs> to a uh, revival service, and Jake got saved, gave his life to the Lord. He started attending this charismatic church, and uh, one day he was at a service, the Spirit of God was moving, he went up to the altar and he said, I want to receive the power of God's Spirit. And so hands were laid on Jake. He spoke in tongues. He felt God's presence. And for the next year, Jake volunteered constantly to do work in the church. And the pastor noticed him after that year. And he said, Jake, uh, I want to make you the youth pastor. And Jake was the youth pastor. He had no spiritual propensity for it. 
And the same power that he used to become the valedictorian, the same power that he used to win the hearts of the women and the men in his high school, the same power he used that he drew on to be a great football player, he used that same power as a Sunday school teacher. And sisters and brothers, I have just described to you many, many, many people in ministry. It's harnessing the power of the flesh. What's the difference? There's no lasting spiritual impact. No lasting spiritual impact. God is not doing it. Man is doing it. It's the flask, not the horn. It's brick and not stone. It's wool and not linen. And you can have the Holy Spirit and do this. Galatians 3.3, listen to this. Listen to these words of Paul. After beginning in the Spirit, are you now trying to finish in the flesh? A Christian can start in the Spirit and switch to natural power, natural energy, natural wisdom, natural ingenuity. Are you saying that I can't use my natural talents? Didn't God give me natural talent? Somebody's thinking that in this room. I know it. Only if, by the hand of God, you allow him to break and devastate and obliterate your reliance on that power where he breaks you. And then that natural ability comes back up in resurrection and it's being emanated, motivated, pulsating with the life of God. And it's not your energy behind it anymore. It's a process of death and resurrection. And that brings me to the cross. There are three major aspects of the cross. One of them we hear all the time. The second one we hear a little bit. And the third one we almost never hear. So I'm going to tell you about all three now. And brothers and sisters, this has come out of my experience. What I'm sharing with you is not armchair philosophy. It's not theory. There are a lot of scars behind what I'm sharing with you. It's life. And I wish when I was 20 years old, 25 years old, even in my early 30s, somebody had told me this. Somebody had given me this message. So I hope to God, some of you in this room who have put your hand to the plow of God's work will hear with all four ears, physical and spiritual. The first aspect of the cross, the most important of all, the death of our Lord Jesus the death of Jesus and what he did there is inexplicable. He not only forgave sin, he became sin. He not only took your sins, he took you and me and crucified us. Not only that, but he crucified the world system. Not only that, but he destroyed the power of the enemy. Not only that, but he took out the condemnation of the law. I mean, he did so many things on the cross and we can sing about it forever with joy and gratefulness. 
That's the first aspect of the cross. The second aspect of the cross is when Jesus bid you and me to die. Take my cross. He, she who follows me must take up my cross and die. This is the aspect of the cross where you lose. You lose your life. I remember reading that passage, he who loses his life, she who loses his life, shall save his life. I thought, well, he's, he's talking about being a martyr. No, you have opportunities to lose your life just about every day. That's right. It's when you deny yourself, right. your own opinions, your own basic nature. Yeah. It's self-denial. It's taking up the cross. It's losing, losing. You get in a fight with somebody. Are you going to lose or are you going to try to win? The cross says lose. If you're in a relationship, there's plenty of opportunity to lose. A relationship of any kind. That's what it means, laying your life down. That's the second part. But the third one is when your Lord brings circumstances and situations in your life that are painful. He allows these things to come into your life. He permits them. But he has a greater objective. That is to break you. To break your natural power. To break your reliance upon yourself. So that you will be useful in his hands. So that it is not you, but it is Christ. So that it's not your power, it's his power. And he needs to bring the cross into your life and mine for that to happen. To break us brokenness and this is where we as Christians can fight it resist it and then waste our sufferings and as I said this morning it will just come back to you in a different form because God doesn't fail his students he just makes them take the test over and over again <laughs> what this does the cross in your life through circumstances by which you will now enter into a trial tribulation suffering. This is in the New Testament, sisters and brothers. Philippians 3, entering into the fellowship of his sufferings. Colossians 1, we fill up the sufferings of Christ through our afflictions. I'm going to read some passages to you because this is not often talked about. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing wealth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Loss, suffering, the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, may fellowship in his sufferings, may partake in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's Philippians 3, verses 7 to 8, and then verse 10. Now, this aspect of the cross where he allows all hell to break loose in your life, not only is designed to break you, so that you can be useful in his hands and you rely on his power, not your own. It's also designed to transform you into the character of Jesus Christ. And I wish I could tell you that this was not necessary, 
But brothers and sisters, it's all over the New Testament. The cross in its transforming work. I'm just going to rattle these off. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Romans 5 verses 3 to 4. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined by trials. That's Daniel 12, verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Isaiah 48, 10. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James 1, verses 2 to 3. We cannot be transformed without the Lord bringing the cross into our lives. Because what that does is it causes you, as you embrace that cross, to make more room for Jesus Christ and less room for yourself. And I can just tell you from my own experience, if it wasn't for the trials that the Lord allowed in my life, permitted in my life, there is no way that he would have been able to gain ground in me. He can gain a little bit of ground, but he can't gain much unless the devastating blow of the cross comes into your life. But here's the breaking part. Listen to these passages. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 9. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened Beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Here is the great apostle saying, we despaired of life itself. I remember a preacher years ago, he was young, he said, Christian ought never be depressed. Well, Paul of Tarsus would not agree with that. He despaired of life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This brother came to the point of despair and thinking and feeling that he was right at death's door. The suffering was so immense, it was immeasurable. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Praise the Lord. That's why the trial came. That's why the affliction came. That's why the inexplicable pain came. So I would not rely on myself. And Paul was naturally a very strong brother. Very strong brother. And God had to break him and shatter him and crush him so that there was more of Christ, less of him. Listen to the words. It's right there. So that, why all of this pain? Why all this suffering? We would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Praise the Lord. And here is the textbook for every minister of the gospel, every person who's in the Lord's work, everyone who serves God. It's 
2 Corinthians 4, the whole chapter, but I'm going to read parts of it to you. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay. I'm not speaking of the band, I'm speaking of the <laughs> translation. We have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Okay, now see the image. You have this beautiful vessel. Actually, it's not so beautiful. It's clay. It's probably unappealing, but there's a treasure in it. How do you get the treasure out? How does the treasure get released? The vessel has to be broken. It has to be broken. And then this is what he says in the next verse. How is the vessel broken, Brother Paul? We are pressed or troubled or afflicted on every side. Not crushed, though. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down. We're cast down. We're knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Are you seeing the paradox here? God's breaking the vessel, but I'm still living, only it's not me. I'm relying on the power of God, the life of God. He's gaining mileage in me. He's gaining ground in me because he's breaking me and I'm allowing him to do it. All right, now, somebody in this room <clears throat> is thinking this. Brother Frank, isn't it the devil that brings suffering and pain and heartache? You mean to tell me all the things I have gone through in my life, the hell that I have walked through, that's God? Okay, I'm going to solve this dilemma. <laughs> Who crucified Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you a few choices. The religious leaders in Jerusalem who were jealous of him. Okay, choice one. Choice two, the Romans who put the nails through his hands and his feet, who were ordered and instigated by the religious leaders. They pounded those nails and scourged him and put him on that cross. The Romans, choice number two. Choice number three, Satan who is above principalities and powers. For if the principalities and powers had known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Son of God. So the devil. But wait a minute. All throughout the New Testament. And it was God the Father who delivered his son unto death. God the Father who handed his son to death. And the answer to the question, who crucified Jesus? Was it the religious Jews, the Romans, Satan, and God the Father? The answer is yes. But Satan would not have done anything unless the Father permitted it. And if he didn't permit it, you and I would not have any life at all. And the same principle works 
when you go through a hellish ordeal, is Satan involved? Yes. And what he wants to do is cause you to blame man and or God and become bitter. Or at worst, take your life. But the hand of your God, the loving hand of your God, it passed through his hands before it got to you. And he is saying, I have a higher purpose. Submit to my breaking. This is the cross. You are fellowshipping with the sufferings of my son, entering into it. Why? So the power of his resurrection may be in you, through you, and to others. Praise the Lord. And so Paul says in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 4, we are always carried away and we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, that's the cross, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We allow the cross, the death of Jesus, to work in us so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Verse 11, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us and life in you. It is through death that we enter into life, and it is through the death of his cross working in us as we yield to it, we submit to it, we let it break us, that we are able to be those who release life. The treasure can get out of the vessel because it's been broken. Praise the Lord. I'll just, I'll just end here. There's so much more I want to say, but... Well, it'll take me three hours. Uh, <laughs> this is enough to absorb as an intro, but if you get on the podcast, you'll hear part two. Sisters and brothers, natural talent, natural gift, natural power makes you look good. But brokenness makes God look great. Praise the Lord. This is the journey of learning not how to do things for Christ, but how to serve by Christ. And there is a big difference. And so I will leave you with those words. May the Lord reveal more and more of this message to you, and I will be talking more about it on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for not going hunting. I praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. to go So the resurrection life can come out. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to shut up. I'm going to go down here and get up on the face before the Lord. And I just want to invite you to come with me. Let God deal with you deeply. God, forgive me of every time I stood up in my own power. It's too valuable to do it in our own strength.